Well, now it's time for us to have the Bible reading upon which our sermon is tonight, and that is from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Thanks, Tom. All right. It can be found on page 825. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Thank you, Storm. As I come up here to have a look at this part of the Bible, just a reminder that we have sermon outlines that you can fill in all the blanks as they appear up on the screen. You can get them uh, online as well by going to docs.jamboreanglican.com and downloading those And if you are listening to this on podcast, then welcome. And you can also click on that link as well and download that and follow along on the outline. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, thank you so much that you speak to us through your word. And we ask now that as we look at this remarkable passage of the Bible, that you would captivate us and fill us with joy as we hear this intimate conversation between Jesus and you, our Father. And we ask that we might learn lots and have a deep assurance through what we read. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that autobiographies are so interesting is that it gives us an insight into the mind of someone who is famous or maybe infamous. Uh, And so when someone publishes their personal diaries of their time in sport or politics or the arts... It's a fascinating read to just get inside their mind and hear what they were thinking as they achieved greatness in their chosen field. I personally like to be able to read Australian political biographies and autobiographies. It's kind of one of the things I tend to do over the Christmas break. And so I've read books by Howard and Costello and Keating and, yes, even the Latham Diaries I read. It's a fascinating read. Uh, It's always interesting to hear what these leaders say, especially a number of years afterwards when you look back on what happened and hear what was going through their mind at the time. And it's always interesting to hear these things happen when the person is famous. And in a sense, the more famous the person, the more interesting the person. So who's the most famous person in history? Well, a few years ago, some computer experts developed something that scours the internet for opinions expressed about famous people and it uses a special algorithm to predict how important that they will remain 200 years after their death. Uh, this is how some people pass the time. Anyway, who do, they, who do you think came up in the top five as they sort of scoured the internet to work out the most famous person? Number five was Abraham Lincoln. Number four... William Shakespeare, number three, Muhammad, number two, Napoleon. I don't think I would have picked that, but number one was Jesus, number one. Now, when I read this, I was pleased, but I can't say I was completely surprised. He's the most famous person in history. He's the most famous person in history. 
Um, you know, it's interesting. Some people deny that he even existed as a historical character. Well, that's just dopey, really. He was clearly a historical person. And indeed, as we see here, he was in fact the most famous person ever. And if he indeed is the most famous person ever, then we should expect that he would be the most interesting person to read about in a biography or an autobiography. But as we, his devout followers, uh, we find it even more worthwhile to get inside his mind because we worship him with our lives. And that's what we're trying to do every time we get here to go to church. We, we come here to know the mind of Christ more and more. And so today we come to this chapter in the Bible that gives us one of the deepest insights into the mind of Jesus. John chapter 17 is a prayer that Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father, which he allowed his disciples to overhear. Isn't that amazing? He did it so they could hear him pray. And it comes after four whole chapters of what is known as the farewell discourse. Uh, it's the bit where he candidly explains to his disciples that he's about to die, and then he comforts them as they get ready for the shock of him leaving. It, it was a seriously heavy after-dinner conversation, I can assure you. And this special time ends when Jesus says this prayer to his Father in the presence of his disciples. And they were going to be graciously drawn into the very heart of the relationship of the triune God. This is staggering stuff. It's more even than being given the Lord's Prayer, as great as that is. Because we're not given the Lord's Prayer here, but we're actually getting the prayer that the Lord said. It's not when you pray, pray this. He's saying, as I am praying, I am praying this. And the words that he prayed were particularly important because of the timing of when he prayed them. And it's because it was the night before he was going to die. And he knew that. And over the next three weeks, we're going to closely examine this chapter and really get inside the mind of Christ. Tonight, we're just looking at five verses, 17 verses 1 to 5. Next week, it's verses 6 to 19, where Jesus prays for his disciples. And the week after, we'll look at verses 20 to 26, where Jesus prays for all of us who will come to follow him. This is a deeply intimate moment when we learn what is on the heart of Jesus just as he prepares himself to face the horrors of Easter. But before we launch into the prayer, I think it's worthwhile us rewinding just a little bit to get a bit of a context of that farewell discourse. What he told his disciples is here. In, it starts in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 1. We read that before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. Isn't that lovely? How he loved them and loved them. It's very serious really because right now is Jesus' hour to leave. This hour to leave has come. It's not something that would have come as a complete surprise though. See, Jesus has been talking about how he was going to die for some time. But now the moment has finally come and we, the readers, are told this. That's what We get this here in chapter 13, verse 1. Not the disciples quite yet. But we're told, heads up, the hour has come. 
And right here, this first verse, as the hour has come, we read about Jesus' deep love for his disciples, which he then shows them by washing their feet. It's a very famous scene in the life of Jesus. He does what the slaves would do. He does what the servants would do. And it's embarrassing, to be perfectly honest. The disciples are just like, you can't do this, Jesus. This is so below you. And yet he says, no, you don't get it. But this is who I am. And this is what I've come to do to you. And so he shows this deep servant-like love for them. And then, soon after that, he tells them about how he will be betrayed by someone. And then Judas gets up and leaves. Judas knows why. Jesus knows why, but the rest of them don't quite get it just yet. But we read in verse 31 of chapter 13 that as soon as Judas left the room, the betrayer's gone, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son And he will do so at once. Jesus tells him that now is the time for him to go into his glory. And he tells them that as he enters the glory, then that will bring glory back up to God. And that will then bring glory back to his son, Jesus. Okay, so did you get that? Uh, If the son gets glory, then God the father gets glory. So the son gets glory. He says this back in chapter 13 to sort of prime them for this kind of mutual glorification that's going to happen. Now this might seem a little confusing, but it's prepared us now as we fast forward to where we're looking at tonight in chapter 17, verse 1. Because we read that after Jesus has spoken all these things after dinner, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. Jesus has finished saying all the things to his disciples and now he prays to his Father in front of them. And he wants them and us to hear what he says to the Father. Jesus models for us the ultimate prayer. Jesus models the ultimate prayer. You know, you can tell a lot about a person's relationship with God and indeed their theology by hearing them pray. How do they pray? What do they say? And what don't they pray when they pray to God? Uh, This is one of the reasons why I think it's just so good to meet with others to pray. I find it so rich and such a blessing as I pray with others. And that's why on Tuesday night at our leadership meeting, I shared that I'd love to explore ways that we as a parish can come together more often to have prayer praying meetings. Um, I don't know when that will happen, weekly, monthly or something like that, but again, I raise it for you tonight to, to start thinking about that. Because prayer in and of itself is great as we speak to God together, but there's something that happens as we listen to each other pray. We learn from each other. And this is also why I think it's good for us to sometimes use pre-written prayers, like those that have been written in the old prayer books. Uh, to be honest, when I grew up as a teenager and as a young adult, I thought the idea of praying a prayer that is old and pre-written is just out. You know, I want something fresh. I don't want something stale. Don't give me prayer of old dead people. I want live prayers, living prayers. But I've repented a little bit of that now. Because I, I, 
I don't think you lose authenticity by reading out a prayer that's been pre-prepared. And in fact, in some of those prayers, we get this deep theology. Uh, one of the prayer books I love above all it is a prayer book by the Puritans called The Valley of Vision. If you've ever come across that, it is awesome. Uh, these old, old prayers can sort of capture these prayers that deliver us and, and, and display to us what God is like. And this, I think, is what it means for us to pray according to God's will. You see, if we know God better and we pray, therefore, theologically sharp prayers, I think we are praying according to the will of God. See, if we're praying, you know, dear God, please make me really, really rich right now, it's like, that's not praying according to the will of God. He's not praying that you would pray that kind of prayer. So don't pray it. Learn who God is and what he wants you to pray and pray that way and wait and see what happens. This is why it's such a great thing to have Jesus model this ultimate prayer to us. And that's why it's good for us to hear the prayers of wise people. Like I said, I love to hear wise people pray and, and to pray prayers that have been written by wise people. But we are now hearing this infinitely wise person pray to his heavenly father. But it's not said in a normal everyday situation, is it? It's a definite one-off. He is about to die and he's about to transform the world. And so Jesus looks up to heaven to speak to his father. You didn't notice that. Jesus looks up to God. He speaks looking up. Now, when I pray to God, I don't normally do that. I normally uh, shut my eyes and look down, except when I'm praying when I'm driving, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, the, the reason that I, I pray like that, I, I think, is probably out of a, a reverence for God. I, I don't know. It might be that it's, it's because we read about it so often in the Psalms. And so in Psalm 95, very famous Psalm, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. You know, we, we, and, and, that, and this is actually something that is said in the Book of Common Prayer, in the morning prayer, this Psalm 95, over and over again. It's kind of in our psyche as Anglicans and as Christians. But what about 1 Timothy 2.8? It says, In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. It's a different pose, isn't it? Maybe that's a bit more reflecting what Jesus did as he looked up to heaven. Anyway, I, I don't say that to say you should pray this way or that way, but just to sort of stir the pot a little bit. Uh, but in the end of the day, it doesn't matter so much our physical stance, but... We do need to recognise that we are praying to God and we're not just talking to each other. We are talking to our Heavenly Father who created us and the universe and he is with us right now in this room. And so we pray to him as we pray. But what does Jesus pray as his first word? He says, Father. Jesus addresses God as Father. This is the standard way that Jesus addresses God. Uh, now, I uh, did a little bit of research this week. I sat down with my computer program that's got the whole of the Bible on it and it's got a whole lot of different translations and different versions from English and Greek and Hebrew and things like that. And I did a simple search for the word Father because I wanted to see how it is that Jesus uses the word Father. And I looked all through John's Gospel, very interesting, all through Matthew and Luke's Gospel as well and a bit of Mark. And, and it seems that in Matthew and Luke's Gospel... People are encouraged to pray to God as Father. So we get the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, say, Father. And so he teaches them to pray that way. 
But in John's Gospel, I was really looking hard for that parallel. And I couldn't find it. It might be that my computer was broken or I was broken. It's very possible, so it showed me over dinner. But as I looked hard, I couldn't see where the disciples spoke directly to the Father. And that is, I think, because they were in the presence of Jesus. And something happens in John's Gospel is that, that Jesus, the Son, and God the Father are just so super close. And, and, and so at one stage, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. And he's like, listen, knucklehead, you you're close as you need to be because I'm with you in your presence. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So don't hunger to be around the Father because you're around me and that's all you need. You see, this, they're almost as one, so, so one in John's gospel that as you speak to Jesus, you're speaking to the Father. There's that connectedness. But now we get to Jesus talking to the Father. So they can't just, I mean, they're one, we know that, but how do they relate as one well this is what we're going to get to see here. it's remarkable but as jesus leaves though what does he say he says you will talk to my father and you will talk in my name so i think that's a logical reason for why we address our father as father in jesus's name it's not that jesus has gone out of the scene now that he's ascended into heaven but we still speak to god our father in the name of Jesus. That's why we end our prayer saying, in Jesus' name, amen. It's not like it's some sort of magic little you know, chant that we say at the end, so hopefully it might work as we wave our wand. It's saying, we, you and the Father are one, and it's a, it's a package deal. We know that together you are hearing our prayers. This is modelled before us, I think, in this prayer by Jesus. But as Jesus has addressed his Father, he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. He's not talking about a literal 60 minutes nor a, a clock with an hour on it that he can point to that particular hour. I think he's saying that the appointed time has come. See, as readers of John's Gospel, we've been waiting for this hour to come. We've been waiting for the hour. When's the hour? When's the hour? And so back in chapter 8, Jesus was speaking to the Jewish teachers in the temple and we read in verse 20 of chapter 8, Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Uh, that's what the New Living Translation says. Grab another Bible, it'll say literally his hour had not yet come. You see the word hour and time are kind of synonymous there. They, they mean the same sort of thing. It's all basically saying that the moment is not Yet here, but now Jesus says it is. The hour has come, the appointed time. The time when he would be arrested by the Jewish leaders, those ones that he offended back then in the temple. Jesus knew that the hour was coming and now it's here. And so it means that for Jesus, he has been living most of his life with a sword of Damocles hanging over his head. He was kind of like a, a man who was on death row, dead man walking, knowing that sometime soon the hour would come. He's waiting for the hour. He did not know the hour, and yet now he knows it's coming. You know, it, it's funny, but unless we know the hour that we're going to die, I reckon we spend most of our time acting like we're immortal. You know, if the doctor said to you, the news is bad, you've got months to live. 
suddenly you will act like the hour is about to come. And it's like, I've got to get my affairs in order. I've got to farewell those people I love. I've got to, I've got to do those things I really intended to do. And if you're a bucket list kind of person, you're going to try and tick those things off before you kick the bucket because it's coming real soon. You know, it's sort of really, really soon. Or maybe you're, you're pretty old and you're pretty sick and you think, well, I haven't been told I'm about to die, but I reckon it's not too far away. And so you might be living like you are in your last days. But I, I'm 48. I might double my years on earth. And so I don't actually think about dying all the time. It'd be very different to a 48-year-old who's just been told that they've got terminal cancer. Life would be very, very different. But you see, whether I live to 49 or 99, it really shouldn't make any difference, should it? It's a bit dopey for me to have this expectation, this sense of entitlement that I've clicked up 49 years, 48 years, I'll get another 48 out of this. Very presumptuous. Because we're all going to die someday, aren't we? We're all going to die someday. Jesus was always going to die. Why? Because he became a human. And he did die. But his death was going to define him. His death would change history. And he knew now that this death was only moments away. So what did he pray to his Father in heaven? As he's dead man walking, as he thinks, I may sleep only one more night's sleep. What does he pray to his father? Get me out of here! No. He prays, glorify your son. Glorify your son. Now, why would he pray that? Why would this infinitely wise man at this intimate moment between him and his father, on his deathbed, so to speak, with a loaded gun about to be pulled, why would he pray this? Is it kind of like he's saying, I want you to glorify me, kind of like going out in a blaze of glory, like a, a race car exploding into a fireball, being screened on TV in front of a million people? I mean, that'd be a kind of cool way to die, I suppose, wouldn't it? But is he saying, I want everyone, to, I want to be glorified in that kind of way? Or is he wanting some sort of reward for going to the cross? It's like, Father, you, I, this was your call. I mean, I went along with it, but I, I want to get something out of this. Well, he's obviously not saying that, is he? Well, to understand what he is saying, we need to look a bit earlier on in the Gospel of John. You thought we were only going to be looking at John 17. Sorry, we're looking at all of John's Gospel. Uh, and we will get faster than just one verse. Yeah, stick with me on this. In the very first chapter of John's Gospel, in verse 14, we read that the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. Uh, when it speaks here of the Word, it's talking about Jesus. And when it speaks of us seeing his glory, it's about us capturing a glimpse of who Jesus truly is as the eternal Son of God. For as we see this glory in Jesus, we're seeing God himself. We're seeing him visible and present among us. Because in Jesus, we see the glory of God. You wanted to see the glory of God, you look at Jesus. And you get the whole thing there. It's kind of like how in the Old Testament they had the tabernacle, the temple. And you could have the presence of God. The glory of God was present there. And they were scared to look in the glory of God because, you know, you 
just didn't do that. But in Jesus, you could. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. And we see more of his glory in John's gospel as we see his miracles. And so chapter 2, verse 11, after he turned water into wine, we read that this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. There it is there. He did this amazing party trick. Water, wine, good wine, and it shows his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Or when Lazarus is about to die, and you say, that's bad, and Jesus says, uh-uh. When Jesus heard about it, he says, no, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. It happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Interesting, isn't it? Lazarus carks it. Why? So Jesus will bring him to life. Why? So that we'll see Jesus' glory. And so then, even as we see these glimpses of his glory, there's an even greater glory to come. Fast forward to one chapter, John 12, 23, 24. Jesus replies that now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. There's the word again. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. He's talking about death and resurrection, isn't he? Clearly. And he's saying the time's coming, death is coming, but good's going to come out of it. And as they're hearing all this, they've got to be thinking, wow, okay, this is going to be pretty terrifying, but pretty awesome. In the end of the day, the greatest glory we would see was Jesus' death. Jesus' greatest glory was his death. So why did Jesus want the glorification to happen to him? Well, he told his father he wanted it to happen so that he could give the glory back to the father. He wanted to be glorified so through it he could glorify the father. It's kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, but in a much bigger way, obviously. You see, Jesus, his ultimate aim was to make the father's name great. He wanted to make the Father's name great. Because when Jesus is glorified, the Son, then the Father is glorified. That's how the Trinity all works. But how does it actually happen? Well, uh, that's verse 1. The next four are going to fly along, trust me. We will get fed before breakfast. Uh, When Jesus is glorified, well... We'll see what happens now. He says, verse 2, For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. There is a connection between the glorifying of Jesus and the authority that he has over people to give them eternal life. Now, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy and techy here, okay? So uh, you need to sort of switch on a bit because I want to show you a fascinating parallel between verses one and two. The problem with preachers, right, is we, we spend all our time looking at this cool stuff. You know, we look at the Greek and we look at the stuff and these nerdy people talking about stuff. We think, ah, oh, I don't know if I can say that in a sermon or not. And then sometimes you think, I'll blow it. So tonight's one of these, oh, I'll blow it. What I want you to know is that verses one and two are in parallel with each other. And it's a bit hard to see that because the translation we've got starts off with the word for, but it can also, the word can be translated just as 
Now, none of the translations I found actually use the word just as. They just use the word for, but trust me, it's there. Uh, Don Carson, who's the most nerdy person in the universe, in his commentary on John that I love, he says that these two verses to be read in parallel. And, and don't take it from me, take it from the Don. But it, what he's saying is it's a little bit like how a whole lot of the Bible is done in parallel. You get it like here in Psalm 24, verse 1. You see this here? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. You see this? It says the same thing twice. It's parallel. The first thing says it and then it says it again. Or Proverbs does it all the way through. Like chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then he says the negative. Do not depend on your own understanding. It says the same thing twice. And I think that's what we've got here. We've actually got a parallel. So here's how it works, right? Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. That's verse 1. And then verse 2 is for, or it's just as, you have given him glory over everyone. And then there's another word in there that, that some translations don't, put in there but trust me it's there so that he gives eternal life to each one you've given him so the glorifying of the son happens because god the father's given him authority over everyone and the giving glory back to the father is connected to how he the father gives eternal life to each one that he's given him you might your head might be spinning i've had a week to think about this but it's pretty cool what are some things you can learn about this? Okay, trust me, you, you'll be able to switch back on in a minute. I'll try and give you some really handy things to, to, to get in this. And that is, the first thing is, the Father glorifies the Son by giving him rule over everyone. See, every single human on this planet is under the rule of Jesus. Everyone, whether they love Jesus like we do, happy clappy, or whether they hate him and want to kill him. Everyone's under the rule of Jesus. And that rule has been given by the Father. The rule of the universe is the glory that the Son had before he came to earth. And it's the very basis for this glorification that's about to happen at the cross. In other words, Jesus went to the cross because he's the boss. Jesus went to the cross because he's the boss. He went to the cross because he has authority over everyone. And because he has authority over everyone, because he has leadership over everyone, his loving leadership leads him to the cross. No wonder he can say, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, his loving leadership leads him to the cross. And he's about to exert his authority over all people by dying for us. And that will result in the glorification to the Father. Now, did you get all that? Well, basically it says that Jesus glorifies the Father by giving us eternal life. And the ones who get eternal life are the ones the Father has chosen to give to Jesus to get that eternal life. Okay? So, are you a follower of Jesus? You are, if you've said, Jesus, I follow you. And if you're following him, you're a follower, right? Okay. And if you follow him... You get that eternal life. And Jesus glorifies the Father when we get that eternal life. He gives us eternal life and that gives God the glory. Now, there's a whole bunch of things we can learn from this. The first is, 
that the number one reason Christians get eternal life is not for us, but it's for God. The main reason we get eternal life is for God's glory. Now, you may not like that. You might like to think that it's all about you. You've been told that. That's the mother's milk, you know, that life is about you. Well, sorry, it's not. It's about the father. And that's okay. Because the main reason we get eternal life is for God's glory. We're kind of like a byproduct. You know, it's like beef farming gives us tennis racket string. Or or brewing beer gives us Vegemite. Some of you might like Vegemite more than you like beer. But sometimes it's the byproduct that you say, isn't it great that we've got this... See, we are the Vegemite. We are the byproduct of something that Jesus is doing to the Father. We are the greatest byproduct of all. But there's a second amazing thing about this. And that is that because nothing will stop the Son giving glory to the Father, it means that nothing will stop the Son giving eternal life to the elect. Our salvation is guaranteed because God's glory is guaranteed. Nothing is going to stop Jesus glorifying the Father. You cannot get between the Son and the Father. You cannot stop Jesus glorifying the Father, even if you had superhuman powers. And because he is definitely going to do it, and because we are definitely the byproduct, we are definitely going to get saved. How cool is that? It's amazing. Which means... If you're chosen, you are secure. God has said, I have chosen that person to be mine. And Jesus says, rightio, I'll save that person because saving that person gives you glory. And we just sort of swept along in this whole thing. And praise God. This eternal life is a gift from God and nothing can take away from it. Like Jesus said back in chapter 10, verses 28 to 29 of John's Gospel, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me. See, they're the same thing. And he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. That is assurance. But how do we get involved with the process? Well, two verses down, three to go. This is going to happen really, really quickly. I'm nearly done, right? I've got to flick along now here. Verse three, we see, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. You see, we get the gift of eternal life by knowing God. We enjoy eternal life from the Father and the Son by simply getting to know them, having a relationship with him, a relationship that starts and ends with God. He knew us before the creation of the world and he chose us back then to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And the reason you can know you have eternal life is because you know you know God. If you've prayed to him, if you've trusted to him, then you have met him. Persons are self-authenticating, I once read by a nerdy person. If If you've spoken to a person, you know they exist. And if you have a relationship with God, then you can know that you have been saved. We have this gift of eternal life. And what's more, eternal life is 
actually more than just about life that goes on forever. Get this, right? Eternal life is about knowing someone who is eternal. I hadn't really thought about that before I got to the, this passage this week. I went, wow, that's really cool. So often we think of eternal life as throw out your clocks, you don't need them anymore. But eternal life is about knowing someone who is eternal. It, it, as Don Carson says in his commentary, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. <laughs> so in other words, eternal life is about knowing the eternal God. And then in the final two verses, we see a summary of what Jesus prayed to his Father. Verse 4, he says, I brought you glory here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I mean, he says, I did the job you sent me to do and it's brought you glory. And he, Jesus gave glory to the Father through his life and his death. He's talking about his whole mission, but I think he's got to be talking especially about the Good Friday bit as well. And so with all of that, you see, I'm, I'm going fast now, we read the very last verse, which repeats what he said before. He says, now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. He says, I, I want to have again what I had before. And that is, when I was up there with you and I was on the throne and kind of like, wow, and I, before I had to come down and do this human stuff. He, he longs for that glory again, that aspect of his glory that he lost, that he willingly gave when he became human and he knows that he will receive that full glory when he returns to heaven the best way to capture this is in philippians chapter 2 let me read it as i close though he was god he did not con not think of equality with god as something to cling to instead he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honour. It sounds like glory, doesn't it? And gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. There it is, isn't it? The Apostle Paul sums it up for us. You know, it's a pretty special privilege to read an autobiography that truly shows the deep thoughts of a writer. But today we've experienced something far greater. We've heard God speak to God as Jesus the Son humbly addresses his Heavenly Father. And we can see it's all about other person-centeredness. Jesus did it all for the Father. And the surprising joy of all of this is that our salvation is swept up in Jesus' selfless love. We get saved because Jesus is selfless. And he gave himself for the Father to give him the glory. And we are the byproduct. And I am happy to be that byproduct because it means my salvation is certain. And so is yours. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much that you shared this prayer with your disciples. And thank you, Father, that we get this insight into your glory. Thank you for the certainty we have in eternal life. And the amazing thing it is for us to 
have that eternal life by knowing the one who is eternal. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that like Jesus, we would seek your glory. And we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.